Hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is the No Film School podcast for the week of August 15th, 2019. This is Charles Hayne, tech writer for No Film School. I'm George Edelman, uh, editor-in-chief at No Film School. And for we're a second, be... I forgot what I, I was. It happened. I mean, we're over 40, man. It happens. And we're going to be talking about a whole <laughs> bunch of stuff this week. We have not one, but two black magic stories to talk about. One is in headlines. The other is going to be in tech news. We, we're going to talk about a, a movie that I can't believe we're going to call a classic, but we're going to call it a classic, Collateral. Uh, we're going to talk about a major deal for an actress move director. Uh, we've got that. We've got some tech news. We've got all that and an Ask No Film School this week on the No Film School podcast. All right. Hey, everybody. So this is sort of tech news, but it was big enough news that we're going to move it up into headlines. Blackmagic released the Pocket Cinema 6K camera last week. Now, they simultaneously did a release for uh, Blackmagic DaVinci Resolve 16. We're going to talk about that later in the show in tech news. Uh, but this is up in headlines. We're just going to talk about the Pocket Cinema 6K. And before we do anything else, I'm going to give you a little context. So the first thing you need to understand is I hate the fact that it's called Pocket. I say this in every article I write about it, but it doesn't fit in your pocket. <laughs> um, the reason why it's called a pocket camera is Blackmagic used to make a camera called the Pocket Camera, and it was a micro four-thirds camera, which is a small sensor and a very shallow flange focal distance, the distance from the lens mount to the sensor. And that camera really did fit in your pocket. And that camera was a huge success because it was the smallest camera that could shoot raw. I mean, that camera was used on Spider-Man, not, I think the Garfield one, but maybe the first Tom Holland one. Um, that camera was used on a bunch of other movies. Like, in Spider-Man in specific, they used it for, like, the chest perspective for Spider-Man. Because it was this tiny little camera, and you could, like, mount it on actors, and you could do all this stuff. And it was, like, a very popular little camera because it was like the tiniest little thing you could get raw out of. And, you know, filmmakers love raw because it gives us more flexibility in post. So that was the pocket and everybody loved the pocket. And then Blackmagic came out with at NAB 2018. Um, and we got to actually you no know, film school in one of those great exclusive moments. We got to see it the day before everybody else did, which was super cool. At NAB 2018, they released the Blackmagic Pocket 4K. Because remember, the original Pocket didn't do 4K, but they came out with this camera called the Pocket 4K that does raw 4K for $1,295. And they kept the Pocket name because of the original Pocket. They're both micro four-thirds cameras. Now, this camera, so, I mean, if you had like a parka, if you had like a big jacket, it would fit in a parka <laughs> Pocket. But it's not going to fit in, like, a suit jacket pocket, which is why I made fun of the name. It's, like, a very wide camera, and there's no swivel viewfinder, and there's a bunch of little ergonomic things that are a little awkward. And there's no in-camera image stabilization, which, like, if you're a Fuji X-H1 fan, is sort of frustrating. But for $12.95, you got 4K raw. You had three options. You could shoot to CFast cards. You could shoot to external SSDs. Like, it had a USB port that you could shoot directly to. So you didn't even have to, like buy a CFast card because CFast cards are expensive. You could just buy like a Samsung 860 hard drive and plug it straight in and shoot straight to hard drive, which is every camera should do that. It's so awesome. And uh, it shot to Blackmagic RAW, which is Blackmagic's proprietary but open uh, RAW. So it, that, that camera was a huge hit. They can barely keep them on shelves. They are everywhere. Uh, that is a very popular camera, that Blackmagic Pocket 4K. 
And even though it was 4K, the fact that it was such a small sensor and MFT wasn't really a deal breaker for a lot of people because micro four thirds, the lens mount that that cam the 4K uses is really easy to adapt to everything else. You can buy adapters for EF. You can buy adapters for PL, which is the common cinema lens mount size. There's room to adapt it to all sorts of different lenses, which has made it super popular because you can adapt it to all sorts of stuff. In fact, I think Tech News last week or the week before, we talked about how Metabones made a specific speed booster just for the Pocket 4K because the Pocket 4K is a little weird. So that's the state of things. And then last week, Blackmagic, and like I was surprised, I didn't really see it coming. They were like Camera News. And I was like, I wonder what you're doing with Camera News. They came out with a Pocket 6K. And this thing will not fit in your pocket. They should have dropped the pocket name. I'm going to keep harping on that because they went EF mount. And this is an interesting choice. I actually did a whole separate post in which every commenter disagreed with me, which I think I've never had unanimous comment disagreement. But everybody in the comments was like, EF is fine. I still feel like I EF... Think that's a, I think that's a win, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, it is certainly one kind <laughs> of internet win to have everyone in the comments be like, you're wrong, Charles. Um, but the take, my take I, of the thing is... I mean, is, I've had that so many times, though, so I don't, you know... <laughs> you, you've been beating me senseless in that. I mean, look, I understand why EF mount was the choice, because, every, you know, I, I don't even own an EF mount camera, and I have, like, two EF mount lenses on my shelf. Like, EF is everywhere. Everybody has an EF lens. They're always available. It's, like, the most common lens mount in history. But first off, it makes the lens mount really big, which means you can't fit the camera in your pocket. So it's off-brand for the camera, but also because of the flange focal depth of EF, you can't adapt it to PL. You can't adapt it to anything else. So it's not as flexible a mount. Whereas if they'd hmm. gone for a shallower mount, like RF, Canon's new mirrorless mount, which you could adapt to EF with like a $300 adapter or a $80 dumb adapter if you want, or if they'd gone for L, Panasonic, and Leica, and Sigma's open lens mount, that would have enabled them to cover the super 35 millimeter sensor just fine, but it would have offered a lot more flexibility. And you know what? I think it is a little bit of a missed opportunity that they did not go for an adaptable mount, especially because people really love internal NDs. And if they'd gone like RF mount, there's an RF to EF with internal ND adapter uh, that I linked to in the article, because it's like that kind of thing lets them have internal NDs. I think there's, I think it's a missed opportunity. I'm correct on this. I think it's very similar to the 4K with the the lens mount being one of the big differences. Well, the then the big difference the is, is a slightly bigger sensor. So the sensor right. is now more traditionally super 35 millimeter sized and it's 6K resolution. And the 6K resolution is really the thing here because what happened is we used to finish everything 1080. And so when you shot 4K on the red, you were like, ooh, I get reframing. We Then, when now we finish everything 4K, although I still finish a bunch of stuff 1080 because 1080 is great, but you're, let's say you're finishing 4K. If you shoot 4K and finish 4K, you can't reframe. So a lot of people really want to be able to shoot 6K and get that reframing back. And we're definitely starting to move to a place where shooting 4K doesn't feel future-proof. And it's interesting because they came out with a whole bunch of really fascinating tools Um to really hit on that fact in Resolve. We're going to talk about Resolve more later, but at the same time they announced a 6K camera, they also announced they have a new smart crop tool in Resolve. So one thing, when you're doing that reframe, you'll be sitting there and you'll be looking at a shot, you'll be there with the editor, and you'll be like, yeah, let's get a close-up out of that shot. And like, it's not that big a deal. It only takes like 30 seconds for the editor to like pull up the effects tab or pull up the inspector and like zoom in on the shot and frame it up. It's like a 30 second thing. But if you're doing 50 shots where you're getting close ups out of the wide shot, that's still 20, 30 minutes in your day. 
that that does take time. So Resolve 16 has a smart tool because the one of the big themes of Resolve 16 is paying attention to face recognition, right? Like for a decade now, Facebook, every time you upload a photo, is like, these are faces. I can recognize faces. Computers can recognize faces. So Resolve built a smart framing tool that recognizes framing, recognizes faces, and will let you be like, I want to close up on that person, and we'll just frame it. You don't have to like drag around zoom and Mm. pan and tilt to frame it. And like, it's only going to save you five seconds. But if you do that a lot, that's actually five seconds that could really add up. And, uh, and doesn't it that, also fit into Black Magic sort of like end to end? Like, so you get the 6K, and with that change and the advantages that that extra resolution gives you, you also get the smart tool. Yes. Post end. That and that's what's so interesting about the release coming out on the same day is that simultaneously they're like, hey, we have this tool that if you're shooting more than your finishing resolution, you can reframe. And we have this camera that's going to be more than most of your finishing resolutions because nobody mm. is finishing beyond 4K at this point. I honestly still, 1080 is still great and you still see it a lot of places. 4K is sort of becoming a more standard finishing format. And uh, so the, the 6K is the hallmark on this camera. Things to worry about with this camera. I mean, look, I, I'm tempted by the camera. I can't wait to do a hands-on review of it. Although I hear from the people who have already bought it, 6K ProRes isn't working quite yet. And that makes sense. We'll get to that in a second. But... Um, I'm excited about this camera. I just like to give full perspective. The things that worry me are, one, the EF mount, and two, battery life. Because, like, I taught a class at Maine Media a couple weeks ago. You guys all remember the podcast probably sounded differently while I was recording in Maine. You heard blueberries in the background. And uh, the one, you know, one of my students had been there all summer, and I brought out the Blackmagic Pocket, and he was like, no, don't make me shoot on that. And I was like, why not? And he was like, well, because I've been shooting all the, on that all summer, and the battery keeps dying in the middle of takes. Um, and the battery Heard about this battery problem with well, them before it's, too. It's not like a pro, like we're all, we've all gotten really used to bigger batteries. Like if I'm working with a real camera, I'm working with real big batteries. They are using little still camera batteries. Now they have an external battery mount you can get for it to put in two extra batteries. Like if you're coming off having shot with 5d and XT three, the battery thing isn't going to kill you because you're used to changing batteries all the time. If you're coming off, I've been shooting mostly on, like, FS7s and FS7 Mark IIs and, like, real cinema cameras, and I'm moving over to this. The battery thing is going to kill you because you're just not used to changing that often. But Mm. this is going to be worse with 6K because 6K is more resolution, more processing power, a bigger sensor. So you're going to be—and it's the same battery system. Now, there's an external power input with this camera, which is great. A lot of cameras in this size don't have it. Like, so— you can hook up an external battery, and almost everybody who shoots with it does. But that is something to think about when you're making the decision with this camera. So those are the two big for you, the battery and the yeah. And, and I mean, I honestly still think the ergonomics are weird. I think it's like too wide, personally. Like, I Is it bigger it, than the 4K? No, they're the same size, but I thought okay, the 4K yeah. was too wide. Neither of them yeah. will. Like if you're shooting on a Ronin, like if you want to use a little stabilizer and you want to use a Ronin S, which seems like the perfect like combo for it with weight, you actually need to use an adapter plate because it's physically too wide for the Ronin S. I'm not even talking about the Ronin SC, the miniature one. I'm talking about the Ronin S. It's too big for it. You need an adapter plate. The Moza Air 2 apparently does it really well. I'm actually, a friend of mine just bought a Ronin S and I'm like, ooh, let's do a test. So we're going to see, he, he bought the adapter plate in the Blackmagic Pocket. We're going to sort of compare them all. You know, it's, it's a physic, it is wider than maybe, 
would normally be the way. You look at something like red and it's a narrower body, it's more square shaped. If you look at the new Z cam, it's more square shaped. This rectangular shape, it's a little tiny bit awkward for cinema adapted uses uh, in things like stabilizers. So that's that's always been my third thing. Hey, I'll be honest, I'm tempted to buy a Blackmagic Pocket 6K. Like it, it is intriguing. There's a lot of things I'm excited about with it. Um, Oh, and I wonder if it ever will do ProRes 6K. ProRes, like, I think the 6K will always be best in RAW, is my guess. I know it's uh, apparently, I just saw this on the forums somewhere, a uh, user bought it, and it wasn't doing 6K ProRes when, when they got it. You probably don't want to do 6K ProRes. 6K ProRes files are going to be monsters. Like, if you think about it, everything, cameras that shoot RAW, like 8K, like the RED, 8K, it's a RAW format. You want a RAW format for anything above 4K just because those files get whopping big, whopping fast. Hmm. So my guess is that you're probably going to always do 6K RAW. It's exciting news. I think you're going to see a lot of them. I mean, obviously, my reservations about the Pocket 4K being a little too wide didn't stop it from being a hit. I think this <laughs> camera's going to be a huge hit. I think you're going to see a lot of them. I think they're going to be around. I'm excited about it. I'm really now excited what, it was 14 months between the Pocket 4K and the Pocket 6K? In another 14 months, I'm looking forward to the Pocket 8K <laughs> with an RF mount. Or an L mount. Either one, RF or L mount. Either one would make me super excited. Just to recap, more Ks means more Ks. better resolution. <laughs> yes, you get more pixels for each K. So when you go each from 4K K. to 6K, there's more pixels. Thousands of more, perhaps? Yeah. <laughs> thousands of pictures. Thousands more. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Well, it's a big story. We've got a lot coming out about it. We also actually have up on the site um, some footage um, up from the B. I, so, what I like the most about the naming is it's the BMPCC 6K. That's a lot of little, that's a lot of letters. You know, it was a BMPCC 4K, and now it's the BMPCC 6K. Because you left out that it's cinema camera is also is also baked into that title. But yeah, we have some footage up on the site, so check that out if you want to see what it looks like. Yeah, let's go on to our next one. We're talking about Collateral. Yeah, so we had a post up from uh, senior editor Phil Perello on the site. Why Collateral is the best Tom Cruise movie no one talks about. And, uh, you know, it's Collateral had an anniversary. Um, so I guess, as you said, it's becoming a classic. And I look at images and clips from it, and I can't believe, uh, yeah, I can't believe that. Um, what's cool about Collateral? Well, there's a few things. One is that Collateral was one of the first movies not made by George Lucas that took advantage of the digital medium. Um, and the idea what, that... At that scale, right? Like there were lots yes. of yeah. movies. Oh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There yes. were lots of Good like $50,000 to $500,000 movies shooting digital. The Chateau, Anniversary Party. There was this big explosion at the indie level. But yes. in terms of like the big Hollywood studio level, outside of George Lucas, this was the first one where people were like, oh, like major directors are going to be shooting digital now. Totally. Was, yeah. And what was fascinating about it, and the article covered, the majority of the article is actually about how uh, Tom Cruise is so well utilized in this role, and it's sort of an interesting, you know, heel turn for a star and his charisma in that way, and how it's not really discussed as like, you know, one of the great Tom Cruise the moments in this massive career he's had that spanned decades of the highest level of cinema. But what I find fascinating, and what I think a lot of our readers do, is that this was, like you said, 
The digital medium was around and people were messing around with it. And George Lucas had his own motivations for doing that. Um, but but Michael Mann is sort of like almost I get you'd almost say he's more like of a painterly filmmaker, and he was using it for its image quality. So he was actually like creating this grainy digital Los Angeles CD world, and he was using it as an aesthetic choice, and that was cool and different. Um, at that time. Now, of course, you know, it's a whole other, <laughs> as we were just talking about the 6K, the pocket 6K, we're in a whole other world. But back then, it was like, uh, oh, so you want to get that video look? That's weird, you know? Well, and also, like, it's interesting to think about, like, I have two big takeaways from the article. One, it's why is this movie faded from our memory? Because, like, for, personally, for me, it holds up. It doesn't hold up like Heat. Like, Heat is still the movie that I probably watch every other year, and I can't believe how good it is. Like, I just love Heat. It's, like, such great. But it's interesting, the collateral, which is still in that, like, peak period Michael Mann, Michael Mann doing amazing L.A. crime noir, has faded from the cultural memory in a way. Like, it's weird. Like, uh, I saw a tweet the other day that someone was like, um, Tom Cruise in Tropic Thunder is the most underrated Tom Cruise performance <laughs> of all time. And it's like, we still as a culture remember, oh, remember when Tom Cruise was the studio exec in Tom Tropic Thunder? Like, that's still <laughs> talked about and shows up. But nobody talks about how phenomenal he was in Collateral. I mean, Tom Cruise is complicated uh, in his personal life. Like, he belongs to what is probably a cult, but how much does he know it is a cult? And it's like, how much are individual cult members culpable for participating in a cult? There's a lot of debate there. But you can't deny that he is one of the few true action stars we have left. He is one of the, like, last remaining, like, movie star movie stars. He clearly cares about making movies a lot and puts a lot into it. And you can see that in Collateral, where he is... You know, he's doing the, like, sort of famous movie star turn where he's like, I don't care yeah. if they know it's me thing. I mean, obviously, it's still Tom Cruise. But, yeah, he's um, had a, you know, he's had a very, and that was a, there was an interesting period in his career in terms of the movies. And, and it speaks to where the mainstream of cinema was at the time. He did a Kubrick movie. He played a very strange part in a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. He was, Which, uh, you, you know, he, it is amazing. I, you know, for me, I, Magnolia is is uneven in my opinion, but his stuff in Magnolia is fascinating, especially today. I mean, talk about something that could be revisited um, to culture today, that the character he plays in that movie. But Tom Cruise is a, um, he's an original and a one of a kind, obviously. And uh, so, yeah, this movie doesn't get talked about. And it's an interesting movie moment in his career and Michael Mann's career and in movie history. And, and again, like talking about the digital medium being used by a major filmmaker and a major star for its look, you know, it wasn't like I said, like Lucas, who was using it to try and usher in a whole new era, which he did and to enable effects, etc. But I think it was more like used artfully. I'm actually going to go on a limb and say that George Lucas did not usher in a new era. I feel like George Lucas, like, his movies look so shittily digital. Like, I don't think the digital... I honestly don't think the digital cinema revolution kicked off until Jim Gennard and Red. I think when Red cameras came out and yeah. you started to see fucking what Fincher did with them and you started to see yes. those movies and you were like, oh, that doesn't look digital. It looks like a new thing, but it doesn't, like... I think that George Lucas was, like, a precursor. But yes. I don't think that, like, anybody... With the exception of, like, Robert Rodriguez, who for some reason went to F950s for a while. I don't think anybody was walking out of the um, the third Attack movie. Attack of the where, Clones. Or, yeah. And anybody was like, I want my movie to look like that. Because it looked mm -hmm. shit. 
it oh yeah, it, it was weird. You know, the dark and, the dark scenes and the. But so what I yeah. think is interesting about that is that he a precursor is a good way to put it. He didn't do it to make it look. It didn't look smooth. It looked like something weird, and that can across the boards with those yes. movies. But what he was doing was he was introducing us to like he was he was pushing the boundary. He was saying like I want to do this weird new thing. It's not quite ready, but I'm gonna yeah. You know, I'm gonna jump into it. He wasn't interested in trying to mimic a previous aesthetic. He wasn't trying to be like, I want to shoot digital, but make it look like a 70s movie. He was like, I want it to look like a now movie or a slightly future movie. But what's interesting about it for me, and this is all going to tie together, actually, is it's interesting that Collateral is a forgotten movie. I was going to argue it's because Michael Mann's movies after that weren't as good. But then we still remember Eyes Wide Shut, and Kubrick didn't make movies after that because he was dead. So like, mm-hmm. why does Eyes Wide Shut stay in the memory and Collateral doesn't? But the ending of Collateral is also about the anonymity of Tom Cruise. Like, he's a man alone, dead on a subway, and nobody notices. Like, it is a movie about mm. anonymity and forgetting in some ways. So interesting. it's interesting that a movie about anonymity and forgetting that, like, very much was part of the conversation for a moment is gone. And I want to take it a step further on that and point out that it was shot with a Grass Valley group Viper. And as we sit around here and we talk in 2019 about, like, the battle for digital cinema, which is really, like, in the under $10,000 camera space is a battle between Blackmagic and whatever Red's about to release. There are a bunch of still camera makers who are also making video cameras that we're, like, playing with. But in terms of, like, this is a dedicated cinema camera, it's, like, Panasonic is the only real, like, I don't make still cameras. Like, they do make still cameras, but they're a cinema company. Um, but it's Red and Black Magic, neither of whom were making cameras in 2005. And none of us are like, man, have you seen the new Grass Valley Group Pocket 6K? Um, they're still a business. They're still, you know, they still make stuff. They just don't make cameras. So it's very interesting that they had this, like, brief moment where they made, for a moment, the Viper was the best for a second. For, like, basically the shoot of Collateral was the time period. By the time Collateral <laughs> came out, other new cameras had come out that were more interesting. Um so it is really interesting. It's also interesting because if you look at the cinematography, there's a whole bunch of stuff that predicts future cinematography. He was using these weird LED light mats and he was doing all of this stuff with like lights that you could tape to the inside of cars that like if you did car work in the 90s, you were putting it on a process trailer, which they did a lot of process trailer and collateral. But you had like you couldn't get lights inside the car. You're not going to put an inky inside the car and make everybody melt and set the roof on fire. Like so you look <laughs> at car work in the 90s and it all looks like Seinfeld. It all looks like these lights outside the car trying to get light on faces. And then you look at collateral and he's got these custom built LEDs, which are like using the same stuff as like Timex uh, Luma Glow and things like that. And he's like taping them to the top of the car. And it looks like what it feels like to drive in a car at night in LA, where you're actually lit by the dashboard, where you're actually lit by these things. Yeah. And it is a new, co- like, there was so much new in collateral because Michael Mann was like, oh, these are the new technologies. And who was the... De- there were two DPs, right? It was Dion Beeb and somebody else. Like, yeah, I know so Dion Beeb. It went through two. Yeah. So it was two people who, like, really leaned into it. Although, from what I've read, Michael Mann was a big pusher of it to do something sort of really fascinating. So, yeah, everybody should go rewatch Collateral. Yeah, I think that it's... Uh, it's like you said, it's something that maybe a lot of that gets lost, but those are all fascinating points. And there's more... There's Michael Mann is a notoriously uh you say pushing but i think pushing is a bit is a good word for what we know of michael mann on set and he can go pretty hard at people and in the crew and there's all kinds of stories about collateral i think it was a difficult uh shoot to be on probably but um you know that's 
part of what you get with a filmmaker who is pushing boundaries like he did and creating new aesthetics and um it's a cool movie though and it and it is deserve deserving of a rewatch and a relook for all these reasons and more so we have a big story up that's doing did really well doing well that people are clicking on and we're getting a lot of interesting feedback in our comments a lot of negative and some positive about it and it's that olivia wilde's new movie deal she made with new line uh made hollywood history and it's fascinating to us on a few different levels one is Booksmart was a big deal uh, maybe not everybody saw it but it got rave reviews olivia wilde is a movie star turned filmmaker. That was her first uh, directorial effort. Um, and as, as far as I know, unless there's something uh, else out there, but this new movie, Don't Worry Darling, um, which we don't know much about, but it's a thriller set on a 1950s housewife, got a major deal at New Line, partly because there was a big bidding war for it. And uh, Netflix was involved, which is fascinating on another level because Netflix went pretty hard after it. And we know that Netflix has all kinds of advanced data that they won't release about what's doing well and why. But one of the reasons we found it so interesting was because um, Olivia Wilde gets a 50% profit participation, even if the movie breaks even. So it's a really positive deal for a second time filmmaker. And nowadays, like as our a lot of our readers are, are people trying to get that first feature made or maybe they've worked a while and maybe they have a couple features made, but we're, you know, looking at what kind of directions careers go in after something like that happens and you, or you hit. And, you know, oftentimes people are handed a big property, a franchise more and more um, and given a ton of oversight. Um, Olivia Wilde is obviously famous in her own right, so there's a, it's a different story for her. But this is a this is a pretty unique situation in the modern uh, movie landscape, and we feel uh, you know we got a lot of people asking us why we're covering something that's sort of like trade news and not closer to the DIY. Um, starting out like tricks, resources, hacks. And I think the reason is that, you know, we serve, we have a big audience and a lot of our readers are trying to figure out what happens, what the next steps in their career are or what's happening in the industry at the next level. And maybe they're at that level. We don't just have people who are looking for um, the first indie project. They might be looking at the second project or what happens. And so we felt this was a valuable story and it would be a disservice to our readers if we didn't cover things like this. Um, and talk about sort of peel back some of the layers. Here's another interesting side bit to it that the original writers of this uh, this darling project were paid a kill fee because they were handing the project over to um, Silberman, who is uh, writing with Olivia Wilde on it. So you can see that, you know, some of these things, you could write a script, you could get a deal, and then someone big comes along and they want to hand it off to them, and then you're going to get paid some amount of money to walk away, basically. So there's all kinds of interesting things about something like this, we think, for the the modern filmmaker. Um, but yeah, a bit of... of $20 million from Netflix came in and was rejected, and that's a pretty big deal. I mean, this seems like a story worth covering to me for lots of reasons. I mean, first off, we can simultaneously be interested in, like, you know, how I can build a light kit for under $1,000 and also be worrying about, like, well, what happens if I go somewhere? Because we are trying to go places, right? Like, I don't, I think the vast majority of filmmakers would like to be working on a larger scale in some way, whatever that means. And this is an opportunity where someone went from a smaller scale to a larger scale. Yes, this person was also an actress beforehand, and that has helped in terms of celebrity and marketing. But let's not forget, like, Clint Eastwood 
Orson Welles, like, these are filmmakers that started as actors and had some celebrity as actors and used that to move into the directing chair. I mean, um... It's also uh, not Renee. easy for a female filmmaker to crack. Like yes. <laughs> these days, maybe, maybe a little more. Yes, she was a movie star, but that doesn't mean anybody's going to take her seriously. I mean, this is awesome uh, on many levels and it's yeah. exciting and we're happy to report it because it's it's very good news uh, for and young it's always filmmakers. Exciting when and, an indie movie, because so many people make that amazing indie movie and it doesn't lead to another feature. So this is great. Also, it's exciting to hear the phrase bidding war again. I can't remember the last time I heard bidding war, probably yeah. 10 years ago. Like the industry is not felt bidding war ready for a while and it's cool that we see a bidding war bidding war for somebody who came off an original small movie that made a lot of money to get another project that's an original like this is all this is very good news for those of us who are trying this is to... the 90s is what this sounds like <laughs> yeah wait let me check the date on this story <laughs> yeah so we're gonna wrap up with tech news this week so obviously we already talked about black magic and the pocket 6k Blackmagic also did something interesting in tech news this week. So they released um, every April at NAB, Blackmagic is always like, here's our next version of software. So if they're on 14, they release 15 beta at NAB. And then somewhere in like August or September, they take it out of beta into stable. They did a really weird thing last week where they released 16 stable and 16.1 beta. This is very weird, but I think tells us a lot about where Blackmagic's ambitions are. And I think it's a really good sign for the future of the industry. So what they're doing, and they announced it. They were like, we're doing this because we want to be used by broadcasters. Broadcasters are on a September to May TV cycle. I know most of us probably watch streaming these days, but a lot of stuff is still on that old school cycle. And there's not a broadcast engineer on earth who's going to take a new piece of software that came out in October and work it into their workflow. They wait till next summer where they can test it and they can make sure it's stable and it's working. So by in the first week of August, releasing 16 stable, Resolve is making it easier for broadcast engineers to test it all of August and integrate it to their workflow in September. Really smart move on Blackmagic's part. I bet they keep doing it from here on out. The fact that they're 16.1 beta means they hadn't run out of stuff that they want to play with. So they want to keep working. They want to have a beta available as they keep playing and developing new stuff. My guess is that we're going to see like 16.1 stable and then a 16.2 beta. Like my guess is that they're working on so right. much crazy stuff. They want to share it with people. And that's great. As long as there's a stable out in August, broadcast engineers can integrate it. And then it's great for students and schools. I work at a school. We don't upgrade middle of the year. What if every, what if it's like three weeks before everybody's final projects do? And we're like, we're going from 15 to 16 and it breaks everything. Our students would have meltdowns. So we don't do that. So we, upgrade in August. So we get to go to 16 stable because we're on a relatively similar to the TV schedule. So I think it's a really interesting indication of where Blackmagic's going, that they're really starting to make these strategic moves towards releasing in sync with the broadcast cycle. So that what, and why it's interesting is like, obviously broadcasters can keep using 15 and 14, but what it really tells us is Blackmagic's rolling out tools they want broadcasters using and getting used to and addicted to and implementing. They want all of these cool things in 16 being used. So it's not just that it's out there. They want people like actually getting their hands on it and implementing it in their workflows. Um, there are a whole bunch of cool new features in 16.1 beta. One of them is the using artificial intelligence to identify faces and give you faster reframes. There's also a cool thing where like it, you can create a sync bin where if you use time of day time code on all your cameras and then you put all those shots in a bin, they automatically sync with all each other, which is like for certain kinds of production, especially TV production, super awesome. Um, 
it's not going to be useful to you if you're like a single camera filmmaker, but in that scenario, it's going to totally be super useful. Yeah, so there are a whole bunch of other things in there. They also released a cool little tool that I want to point out that a lot of like, I think we're the only people who even ran a separate article on it. They ran something called the Blackmagic RAW test, which will analyze your computer to see how well Blackmagic RAW will work on your computer. Well, that's actually cool. huge. Yeah. yeah, clients all the time are always like, hey, I shot X. Can your computer handle it? And you're always sort of like making a guess or doing a test. And you're like, hey, give me some footage. Let me let me see. And even better than telling you if it'll handle it, it'll identify if it's a CPU or a GPU problem. So if your CPU is hmm. fine, but your GPU is not strong enough, you could upgrade your GPU, which on a PC is really easy or you have to buy an external box on a Mac. Um, but it's like one of those nice little tools. And it's just a free tool they released. And... Um, I hope it will inspire others. I hope there will be a ProRes raw test. They're big on making things a little bit easier. They're they're yeah. that's how they kind of they get into the space because they make things a little easier for you to do and then yep. you know you want to use the other products cuz it's easier to use all of them and then, you know the next thing you know. Yep. They have a plan and they talked about their plan in their thing. They were like, "Hey, we give away the software cuz we know you have to buy the hardware." It was part of the presentation. They're unabashed. They're like, "We know you, this is our model." And it's yeah. like, "Yeah, maybe they put their chips on the table." All right, so that's tech news this week. That's been this week on the No Film School podcast. Uh, you can join us here every week where we cover headlines from the world of filmmaking, tech news, and Ask No Film School. You can always hit us up on the No Film School boards or at Ask at No Film School to be in the Ask No Film School. You can follow me on Twitter at Charles Hain, or I have a, another podcast that's only tech news. It's just nerd shit called The Week in Film Tech. You can check that out wherever you subscribe podcasts. And uh, you can see articles about all this stuff and millions of other things at nofilmschool.com. We should have a Twitter that's, uh, or a podcast that's nerd shit. Why isn't there a podcast nerd just shit. called Nerd There must be one, of course. Probably on the Nerdist Network. I'm George Edelman, again, editor-in-chief at No Film School, and you can find me on Twitter at, at No Film School. You can also email No Film School at editor at No Film School, and we love to hear from you. Awesome. See you guys all next week.